When I was 15 years old, my mom took my sister and I to visit her homeland in the Netherlands. My aunt and my two cousins also came with us. It was the first time I'd been on a plane, and it was the first time I'd been out of North America. It was a family-driven holiday where we got to meet our Dutch relatives, and we got to see the places where my mom spent time as a little girl. We visited her childhood home, and we walked many cobblestone streets in many small neighboring towns. We biked everywhere. We ate Dutch lunch, and we drank port, and we visited the giant flower auctions. We walked through the red light district and one of us peed our pants from fear of almost busting up a drug deal in a back alley. It was ridiculously fun and really special and it's where I got bit by the travel bug. I'm Jenny B and this is it actually. This is it actually. Take a sip and grab a seat cause this is it. We all know there isn't one particular way in which we should live life. Different backgrounds, cultures, surroundings, neighborhoods, lifestyles, these all have a huge effect on the way we conduct ourselves and the things that we get interested in. We're products of our environments. I grew up in a small town, and when I left home to move to the city, I met my first feminist and openly gay friends. Not to sound trite, but it was life-changing. For 20 years, I'd only seen life one way, through the eyes of a pretty narrow, albeit wonderful, lens. Then, when I took my first backpacking trip, it was the exact same thing, but on a much bigger and more intense scale. Seeing the way people live in other cities and countries and even meeting other humans who are traveling at the same time opened my eyes wide to different opinions and views and ways of life. I would suggest that it's kind of hard to stay sheltered and close-minded when you're walking across the world stage with other people. It literally broadens our horizons. That trip to Holland when I was 15 was pretty eye-opening. Even though I was with my mom and my aunt, we managed to get ourselves into a little bit of trouble when we ventured just outside the town limits of Elsmere. We begged my mom to take us to Amsterdam, and although she'd been lots before, I think she was hesitant about taking her two daughters to the seedy underbelly of her homeland. That's obviously not what Amsterdam is, but my mom had painted a pretty idealistic and charming picture of where she grew up. Heading into Amsterdam meant accepting a little tarnish. As we boarded the train into the city, we were given one rule by our cousins. We were told to never go behind the church that had a sign at the top that said, Jesus loves you. Hmm, Seemed easy enough. Avoid the Jesus loves you church. Got it. On our first day out, we decided to go walk around. I remember mom being unhappy with my choice of outfit, a small tube skirt and crop top. Whatever, mom, I'm 15. (laughs) Hilarious to now be the mom of a 15-year-old. My cousin was in charge of the map, and both my mom and my aunt made him study where we'd be going before we left the hotel because they wanted the map folded up and tucked away as much as possible. Blend in like the locals. Let me assure you, we did not blend in for one second. I was absolutely mesmerized by that city. I loved the way it swerved and curved, the walkways and the bridges, the corner patios, and the people. I was lost in my own little world when my cousin informed us that he wasn't totally sure where we were. The map was coming out. Well, we got all twisted and turned around and ended up walking down an alleyway that brought us out to a wide cobblestone street where there were just a few people in small groups at the sides of a long walking bridge. As we passed two guys tucked into the side of a building, speaking in hushed tones, my aunt's face went pale. She said something in Dutch to my mom and then snapped at us to quicken our step. My mom grabbed my elbow in the way only a mom can do and hurried me along with my feet kind of dragging behind me. 
I was like, what's going on? I'm just people watching and admiring architecture. Once we crossed the bridge, I saw the look of panic on their faces. Apparently, my aunt had heard some sketchy dealings happening between the two guys standing beside the bridge, and she promptly peed her pants. (laughs) It's a family affliction. I don't want to talk about it. When we walked out of the alley on the other side, I looked back, and sure enough, we were behind the Jesus Loves You Church. We had one instruction. (laughs) On that trip, I saw the red light district and was humbled by my own reaction of locking eyes with a young woman in one of the windows. I was offered a magical brownie by someone outside a coffee house, and I was asked by a sex show solicitor to come on inside and have a little sex. It probably doesn't surprise you to find out that our three-day mini-excursion to Amsterdam was cut short. When I was 19, I started making plans to go back. My dad was sick, and I was at home with my mom taking care of him, and at that point, we knew what the outcome would be, so every now and then we would discuss what our after looked like. We certainly weren't wishing dad's time away, but sometimes when you're deep in the seat of grief, you need things to look forward to and maybe to aspire to, or you'll sink further into the furniture. So we started talking about a return trip to the Netherlands, but also I floated the idea that maybe I would stretch a little further beyond my mom's hometown limits this time. My brother and I decided to split the trip and spend a week in Holland and two weeks riding the rail to other places. It is not an exaggeration to say it was pure magic. I was so scared and so excited, and you have to remember, I wasn't just coming from a regular 21-year-old's life in a small town. I was emerging from a -a two-and-a-half-year journey of helping and watching my dad slowly die. So I think it's safe to say the world looked very, very big and very, very wide open. There were so many amazing things that happened on that trip. I guess the number one most important thing isn't a specific story. It's the bonding that happened with my brother. We were put into situations that we wouldn't normally have experienced together in any other scenario, and I'm forever grateful for that. We ate pizza in Florence, we hit the beaches of Nice, we ate a lot of bread in France, and almost got taken out by the questionable drivers in Paris. When we arrived in Interlaken, Switzerland, there were only a couple of hostels that were listed in the travel books. I think we closed our eyes and pointed to one. When we arrived, it was a chaotic but weirdly organized system. Everyone was sitting outside with their backpacks, and you had to check in by putting your name on a list, stating your gender, and who you were traveling with. As people left and beds opened up, you got slotted in. It was full of frat boys and sorority girls, and the rooms closely resembled those of army barracks, so we gave the place a nickname. We called it Camp Beta West Point. I actually couldn't even tell you what the real name was now. The rooms were lined with bunk beds on every available bit of floor space, and they shoved people in like sardines. I ended up sharing a bunk with a perfect stranger, and I don't just mean I was on the bottom bunk and she was on the top, I mean there was someone on top and she and I were in the double bed below together. She was only there one night, so I got the bed to myself on the second night, but let me tell you, when you have to share a bed with a total stranger, you really learn to appreciate having your own space. Interlaken is a place where you do stuff. There were so many day trips to choose from. We decided that climbing a mountain was definitely something we should do when in Switzerland. My brother was and is extremely fit, but we were assured that this was an excursion for all types. So I threw on my hiking boots and my little backpack, which I'm sure had not nearly the essentials that I probably needed, and we were off. I can't tell you when things started to go south. I'm not sure what elevation we were at or how many hours we'd actually been climbing, but my pace was starting to slow to that of an old grandma and I was definitely holding my brother back. 
A very sweet guy from our hostel said that he would stay with me if my brother wanted to go ahead. We decided on a signal that for every however many feet we walked, we would raise our hand in the air to make sure we could still see each other. Let's just say my brother's hand became a distant memory very, very quickly. I did make it to the top, and when I came up over the last little stretch, it was completely foggy and the clouds were so low, and I think we were actually standing in them. So the only pictures I have are of white fluffs with a tiny sliver where you can see the slightest bit of blue sky and maybe something that resembles the tip of a neighboring mountain. After I got over my disappointment, no one will ever believe how high I was. The walk down was a breeze. What I didn't realize was that, sure, the walk up was all thighs and calves and cardio, but the walk down was all shins and ankles. You don't really feel that when it's happening. You're just so happy to be on a decline, so it's possible my steps were just a little more ambitious than they should have been. A few hours later, showered and napped, we headed out to dinner. I was famished. Yummy food, too much wine, and not nearly enough water. When we stood up to leave, I couldn't actually move. My legs had completely seized up and my head was all of a sudden pounding like someone was hitting it with a sledgehammer. I hobbled home in the shape of a C and got folded into bed. My next backpacking trip happened when I was 26 years old. I saved my waitressing tips for 10 months and I thoroughly planned it out. My girlfriend and I would get cheap bottles of wine after work and lay out maps on the floor and circle all the places we wanted to see. For the longest time, it just seemed like this idea. We'd get so lost in the planning and the mapping out that when we actually got to the week before, it sort of hit me like we're really doing this. We boarded a plane and flew over the North Atlantic Ocean. First stop, Paris, France. I took one sweater, one pair of brown cords, a rain jacket, hiking boots, Birkenstocks, one dress, and a bunch of t-shirts and shorts. We didn't have phones, so it was a collect call to my mom every Sunday from a payphone. We drank wine and smoked French cigarettes. We ate baguettes and cheese at least twice a day. We sunned our buns on many hot beaches. We ran out of money. We worked for more money. We got tattoos. We missed our curfews. We had siestas. We hopped trains. We changed old plans and we made new ones. We went to the baths in Hamburg. We danced the night away in Barcelona. I convinced a crew of persuadable people back to Interlaken because I needed them to see Camp Beta West Point, and my high school boyfriend showed up at our hostel in Nice to declare his love for me. He was actually already in France, but it's still a pretty great story. That trip was all about the people. We met some of the most amazing characters from one end to the other. We had deep, late-night conversations with people we knew we'd never speak to or see again. We became familiar with shop owners and for a brief second in time felt like locals in places we'd only be for a couple of days. But something else happened during that time. We met four people who changed our lives forever. When I think about that trip, for me, it started on day five on the floor of a Paris train station and it ended on a couch at my cousin's house in Alsmere 10 days before we came home. So we had done Paris and we were heading to Barcelona. The train station was packed with people, so we found a spot up against the wall at the top of a ramp leading down to the trains. When the trains rolled in, there would be a swarm of people mad dashing it up and down the ramp, causing a flurry for a few minutes, and then it would settle. We were drinking wine from a bottle in a paper bag, real classy-like, and writing in our journals when the latest swarm settled and we saw four boys setting up camp on the floor directly across from us. Their scene looked very familiar. Overstuffed backpacks with baguettes poking up the top, wine and paper bags, and hiking boots firmly on feet. About five more swarms of people whooshed by, and there was an announcement over the speakers that said something about final boarding and Madrid. 
The four boys looked at each other, jumped to their feet, and ran down the ramp. About six minutes later, they were back. They looked discouraged and a little deflated and dropped their stuff back in the same spot. We smiled, and two of the boys grabbed their bottle and crossed the ten-foot space that was separating us. They had missed their train and asked us where we were going, and that was it. We spent the next three weeks traveling together. Our first train ride was bonkers. We couldn't find a seat and kept being told to go to car 42. We walked the whole length of the train, and when we finally found it, we saw that it was just a little hallway, but there was no way we were going back, so we threw our stuff down and made the best of it. Fourteen and a half hours stuck inside a two and a half foot wide space. We played games, we drank, we dozed off, we got real familiar. At the first stop, the wall in front of us swung all the way open like a garage door. The people standing on the other side, outside on the platform, were super shocked to see us sitting there. Uh, yeah, we were shocked too. One of the train guys, looking more annoyed than surprised, told us to bouge toi and hopped up to pull up another secret wall, the one we were leaning on, and when he opened it, we saw everyone's luggage. We were in the baggage car, and that was just the beginning of the adventure with our Mississippi boys. We swam in the Mediterranean Sea, we ate too much and drank too much, and walked for what felt like days on end. We visited museums and beaches and literally danced in the street. We were inseparable, until we were separated. We usually sat together on our train rides from city to city, but on our way from Budapest to Prague, we were incredibly hungover and exhausted, and some of us, mainly me, just wanted to read our books in peace and quiet. Two of the boys went to try and find bunkies, and the other two spread themselves out across four seats a few rows away. The train pulled into Storovo, and the ticket collector came around to stamp our passes. He took mine and my friends and studied them for a few seconds. Then he asked for our passports. He turned to his co-worker and said, Canada. Our American friends made some jokes about us being moved to first class because of our true north roots, but instead we were told to grab our stuff and get off the train. It all happened super fast, and it was a lot of broken English, but we managed to gather that we had the wrong ticket to get into Prague, and we would just need to go fix that, and we'd be right back on. We went into the station, and we were taken to a private room upstairs. We were sitting at a desk beside a window, and our eyes were locked on the train outside. The two officers, if that's what they really were, made us pay 125 bucks each to get back on the train. There was nothing we could do. We just wanted to get out of there. When we were counting out the money, we noticed the train slowly starting up again. We begged them to stop it so we could get back on with our friends, but they just laughed at us. The train started to move and we ran out of the room, down the stairs and out to the platform. But it was too late. Our Mississippi boys were staring out the train window, frozen. We stopped running and waved goodbye. We eventually got to a very dark and gloomy Prague and spent the next week looking for them. We went to the main square so many times, hoping to see their familiar faces. We called a bunch of popular hostels and asked if they were there. We even went into a pub called American Sports Bar, hopeful they'd be sitting inside. Their departure day came and I was feeling a little homesick, so I decided to call my mom on a Tuesday. When she heard it was me, she just started yelling, hold on, I have a message for you. She dropped the phone in her bedroom and picked up the phone in the kitchen saying, the boys called. I was like, what? Basically, they had been looking for us too. As a last ditch attempt, they called the operator in Canada. Yep, that was a thing back then. And asked for the number of any Besworths in Meaford. See, I talked about my hometown a lot even back then. Sure enough, they got connected to my mom and explained the whole thing. She told them that I only called on Sundays, but just in case, wrote down the address of where they were staying. 
You would have thought that we found the location of a million-dollar prize. I mean, I guess we kind of did. We ran like maniacs through the streets, asking anyone we could how to get to where we were going. We huffed and puffed our way to the door and knocked to no answer. We sat down on the step and waited until someone finally showed up. We asked if he knew the four boys from Mississippi. He said, yes, are you the Canadian girls? We said, yes, are they here? He said, they were. They left to catch their train two hours ago. We never saw them again on that trip. We changed our travels one more time. We wanted to go back to the beach, and we desperately needed some sunshine. That's the cool thing about backpacking. You kind of get to do whatever you want. We met some really great and fun people on that leg of the journey, but our minds were still on our friends from the States. We finished our travels back in Elsmere. We told my cousins all of our stories, and they said, you have to call them. At that point, the boys had been back home for almost a month, so we got a calling card and dialed the first number. No answer. Then we tried the second boy. No answer. We had to dig for boy number three's number, but his mom answered on the second ring. My heart was pounding out of my chest. He said, hello. I said, it's me. He laughed for a second and then said, Jenny? I couldn't believe it. After all that time spent together with no goodbye and we were talking again. He asked how we were and told me their stories of looking for us. They did go to that American sports bar, by the way, and they laughed at their success of getting through to Meaford. Then he said he had sad news. One of the boys got really sick really fast when they had returned back home. He had a tumor in his throat and it was too far gone. He fell into a coma one night and never woke back up. His mom had developed his pictures from the trip and read his travel journal out loud to him in the hospital, so she learned all about the Canadian girls that they'd met. What's crazy is, his funeral was that very day. All these years later, I still think about how different it would have been if those boys hadn't missed their train to Madrid. We obviously wouldn't have known the difference, and I'm sure we would have met other wonderful people, but I can say for certain, not like that, not the same. My first real backpacking trip was a four-country, multiple-city trip in 1993, with none other than the creator and voice of this very podcast, my wee sister, Jenny B. It was a nostalgic time before Google and cell phones when travelers relied on tourist information centers, kind strangers, and a well-worn copy of Let's Go Europe. We didn't wear anything expensive, and we kept our traveler's checks next to our skin at all times. Pictures were carefully planned and rarely spontaneous due to the cost of film and the challenge to get the correct f-stop. I have one such picture of Jen and I during our time in Nice, in the south of France. We were sitting on a low concrete wall with eight other backpackers who had come from Australia, Spain, Denmark, United States, and of course Canada. It was evening, the Mediterranean Sea was the only background. Everyone was smiling, carrying an inexpensive drink of choice in hand, as well as the glow of a full day at the beach. From our own distant and complicated lives, at that moment, the ten of us were sitting on that wall, living a cooperative and carefree life of the urban backpacker. I look back at that picture now, and I realize how much chance played in a significant role in the wonder of backpacking. Away from our more predictable, orderly lives, we all had the freedom to experience whatever the day presented. And on that day, by chance, it brought all of us to this perfect evening where all we had to do was live entirely in the moment. And so it went for the rest of our trip and for all the other travelers that were making their way through Europe at that time. There are many things in life, if I had a chance to go back, I might alter, I might change a little bit. But our rookie trip to Europe, where we saw and did so much and we strengthened an already secure bond, I'd leave it exactly as it happened. 
Well, except for that little hostile thing in Interlaken. Matt, who was my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, a couple of years ago, we went on a two-week road trip to Newfoundland, which was actually our last big trip that we've taken. And it was, you know, an amazing trip for so many reasons. A, we got engaged on that trip. B, to be able to explore your own country, but feel like you're in another world was the most amazing thing. But one of the most special things about the trip was that we stayed in little B&Bs in these tiny little towns and got to meet so many wonderful people. And that's something that was new for us because typically when we would travel, we would go stay at our own Airbnb or a hotel. And, you know, you don't really meeting that many new people when you travel as a couple unless you really, really seek it out. And so one particular B&B that stood out was we were in the very, very, very north of the province up up in Viking land. And we were staying at this tiny little B&B and we were the youngest guests there by like at least 30 years. And we just fell madly in love with the owners. They were this adorable couple couple who happened to be from Windsor, Ontario. And one day we were having a glass of, you know, wine with them, just introducing ourselves and them to us and with the other guests. And the woman, her name was Jenny also, ended up telling us this beautiful love story about how her and her husband met and how they knew each other when they were kids. And you know, it turned into this just crazy tale about them being childhood friends and her always being in love with him and him always being a little bit too old for her at the time. And so he didn't, he only saw her as a little kid and she ended up going off to become a nun for 30 years. And he went off and got married and had his own family And it was only until years and years and years later when she left the monastery and reconnected with him that they fell in love later in life and decided to move up to the northern tip of Newfoundland and open a B&B. Hearing this like amazing love story of these two people that we just happened, you know, to book their place, like it was just such a chance encounter and the most lovely story. And, you know, it was already such a romantic trip for Matt and I, but to hear this from this adorable little couple was just made that trip even more special. A Canadian and an Australian walk into an Irish pub in Paris. How's that to a setup for a relationship? (laughs) The story of how I met my wonderful wife, Alison, is one of many amazing memories I have of backpacking. I had been working as a backpacker tour guide for a company called Busabout, which as a summer job was awesome. I had paid accommodation in London, and every other day I'd travel to Paris, I'd spend the night there, and then travel back. We'd be ferrying backpackers on a sort of Eurail but with buses, so my summer was spent traveling back and forth between London and Paris. You can't get much better than that, but I was in Paris on August 18th, 2001, and I did not want to go out. It had been a long day on the road. I'd gotten all my backpackers on their first leg of their trip and checked in, and I just wanted to crash. I had nothing to do until the following morning when I'd be getting up and meeting up with the backpackers who were at the end of their trip on their way back to London. But Greg, who was another bus about guide who was in town up from the south, he wanted to go out. And so he headed to Edward and Sons Pub, which is a couple of blocks from the Moulin Rouge Club. Yes, that Moulin Rouge, near the Red Light District, just to have a few drinks. Now, you have to understand this, is that 
tour guides were kind of rock stars. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. So Greg and I held court that night, or rather, Greg held court, and I was just along for the ride. We had a great time, and gradually I started really noticing this brunette, freckled girl with a wonderful smile, and we got talking. Her name was Allison. She'd been just coming up from the south of France and was on her way back to London where she was going to be teaching. We hit it off. What was pretty cool about the night and a little keepsake that Al and I both have is that we each had cameras. Now, not digital, and this is well before um, smartphones, but we have photos of the night we met, and they're quite epic. We eventually left the bar. We walked, we talked. Yes, we did kiss. After we parted ways, it was very, very late, and I had to yell up to the second floor window to Greg to let me in to the small hotel that we were staying at. It was a great night. And I'm going to get in trouble for this. But, you know, it's coming up on 20 years. I think I've earned a little credit. When she went to meet me at the station, a few days after we'd met, to bring me back to her flat so I could make her dinner, Al had to have the photos of that first night printed up, just so she could remember what I looked like. Anyway, and the rest they say is history. She eventually moved to Canada for three years, and then we moved to Australia for five, where we got married and had three kids. In 2007... We actually returned to Edward and Son's pub near Montmartre in Paris, called the bartender over, plunked our eight-month-old son Jackson on the bar and said, this is what happens when people come to drink here. Merci beaucoup. One of my best friends, Jen, has always been so brave and adventurous and strong. Like she backpacked solo through Asia and Australia, and that's really cool. Then she took off to Europe, and I planned to meet her in Italy, and we would go from there. But was I brave and strong and adventurous? It didn't feel like it in Ontario, but that is the magic of travel. You suddenly become who you want to be, worries fade far into the distance, and you wrap yourself in a new skin of bravery, strength, and adventure. So I hopped on a plane solo and flew to Rome. I got off the plane and suddenly it hit me. I looked around at the buzzing airport, my ears filled with unfamiliar languages, my eyes struggling to understand unknown symbols and words. And all I knew was I need to get to my next terminal and hop on my plane to Venice. Honestly, I couldn't tell you how I did it, but I'm guessing instinct kicked in. And I walked for a while through the airport, took two shuttles and somehow ended up where I needed to be. I arrived in Venice, I stepped off the plane and I moved with the flow of people to get my travel backpack. But now I was faced with the dilemma of I need to get to the train station to meet Jen. She was traveling in from another country, and I looked down at my phone with no service and certainly no Wi-Fi. I looked around to see and hear the now slightly more familiar foreign words and sounds, and instinct kicked in again. I walked onto a bus and thought, this is probably going to end up close to the train station, and it kind of did. After I got off the bus, and after much walking and wandering through the Venice streets, I approached a large set of stairs. As I ascended the steps, it all hit me at once. Fast-paced locals heading to or from work, backpackers reading travel signs and schedules with an unwavered focus, the warm sun lightly touching my skin, the many sounds of a beautiful language woven together, Italian music mixed in with train announcements, and the smell of pizza. Seriously, there was like five pizza shops at least. So now what do I do? I have no idea what time Jen is arriving, from which train, and I actually haven't been in touch with her since I left Toronto. 
So I did the most common sense thing I could do. I grabbed a big slice of Italian pizza. I found a spot right across from where the trains arrived. I parked my butt on the cool cobblestone and I watched and I listened and I tasted. My adventure had already begun, but I honestly had no idea how amazing it would be. It's hard to adequately capture how much my trip to Europe in 1996 meant. I just graduated from college, 21 years old. I was starting dental school in about three months and uh, took off with, with three, three buddies of mine with this idea that I would uh, conquer the world, you know, drink and have sex and be merry. Whatever thoughts go through the mind of a 21-year-old, free from the burdens of college, and pretty much that's what happened. But it's interesting, though, that the things that I thought I would get from the trip were not necessarily what I what I got. You know, I think I thought that I would go there, see the, the great monuments of the world, have lasting memories of those things, and I, and I do, I do, but 20 years removed, those are, those are pretty distant. What I didn't expect was that I would make other friends, uh, and specifically you. We met uh, on the train station in Paris. My group of guys had been uh, in Paris for four days and were planning to head to Madrid. We couldn't get onto our train. We, we didn't speak French. We were cocky Americans. We didn't feel the need to learn to speak French or communicate in French. And rightfully so, these French didn't particularly want to help us figure out the train system, how to get a ticket to Madrid. And after three or four missed trains and lots of headaches and I'm sure lots of alcohol by the time this rolls around, we're sitting on the platform in Paris going, what do we do? There's no more trains to Madrid tonight. We look over and there's two girls sitting by themselves on their backpacks on the ground waiting for a train. Don't know the details of who talked to who, but at some point we became chummy. Nevertheless, we got on a train to Barcelona. The problem was we got on the train and the train left and there were no seats on said train. We had to spend the whole overnight train in the hallway of the baggage cart. While that might sound miserable, it was probably one of the funnest nights of my life. Sitting in a hallway, crowded, on backpacks, drinking wine out of plastic cups with a bunch of perfect strangers, having to move over every 10 seconds when someone needed to come down the hall, but yet a true friendship was cemented that night. I developed a real friendship with probably the first Canadian I ever met. I had these myriad of, of snippets such as watching you get a tattoo on your back. Uh, it's the first time I've ever first time I've ever seen anyone get a tattoo. Oh my gosh, <laughs> what is this person doing? I can't believe this. Memories of hearing you talk like a Canadian. I remember sitting between train cars, smoking a cigarette, listening to your Walkman or your CD player, I don't remember which, probably a Discman, and you introduced me to Andy DeFranco, stumbling down the street after leaving a bar, singing Wonderwall at the top of our lawn, going to Sex Museum in Amsterdam. For me, that's what traveling was, was these, these little snippets that I still have in my very conscious memory that when I hear Wonderwall on the radio, or I hear Untouchable Face by Andy DeFranco, I instantly 
taken back to those times in Europe where I had the fortune of, of making friends with people all over the world, especially with this little Canadian named Ginny B. This is a tip, actually. When you travel, keep a journal, even if it's something small, more like a daytimer or a log of things you do and people you meet. It's impossible to remember everything, and looking back on words and pictures really helps repaint the adventure and puts you smack back in the middle of the journey. Thank you to Haley, Jono, Sam, my travel buddy and brother Jerry, and one of the Mississippi boys, Craig. I'm so grateful for all of these stories and all of the travels. Follow me at This Is It Actually on Instagram and at This Is It Actual on Twitter. Now go say something nice to someone. This is it, actually. Take a sip and grab a seat. Cause this is it.